0: I wonder if you turn on your uh, Bibles, if you have one, and forgive me, I don't know all the page numbers in this church Bible, so if you're struggling, there's always an elder somewhere who knows the Old and the New Testament. So it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read from verse 1. And as you're turning that up, uh, let me just say a sincere thank you to uh, Pastor Peter and the elders for inviting me uh, to share in this evening's service. I count it a privilege, and for people in the church who have prayed for me for many years, I thank you as well. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. And this is God's word for us this evening. And a short prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, when we come to your word, it's light in darkness. We thank you it's truth in error. We thank you that it's there to... Remove the darkness from our own lives and remove the error from our own hearts. And we thank you that you're for us and you're not against us. Your whole desire is our very best. Your desire is to lift us up when we're down. Your desire is to get us on course when we're off course. Your desire is to strengthen us in our weaknesses. And so we thank you when we come to you. We come to someone who genuinely is interested in us and wants to help us. And so I pray that this evening you might open our eyes, every single one of us, that we might see the truths here that you want us to see and that you would bless us and encourage us and strengthen us to enjoy the reality of these truths in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I had lunch with uh, Pastor Peter um, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm glad to say he paid, uh, though I think it came out of my offering. And um, as we were talking, he said to me, he said, Now, Ian, I want from you a simple gospel message. Well, I obviously I always work in the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. And so my great concern, as I listened to him say that, was to go right back in my mind to the very heart of the Christian faith. In fact, to the very heart of my own faith. Because if you've never grasped the gospel, you haven't a clue what Christianity is. But if you've grasped the gospel, it is that which will so change you from the inside that you will be totally different on the outside, whether you wear jeans, a suit, a tie, or no tie. These things are immaterial to God. For God does not look on the outside He looks on the inside. With that in mind, without going overboard, I think we would admit, as I take as my title, Good News in Bad Times. I think we would admit, as we look around the world, the sheer mess our world is in. All you have to do is mention the names of countries, and immediately you're aware of difficulties. Whether it's Iraq, or Tibet, or Zimbabwe, or Darfur, or Sri Lanka. Whether it's in North America. Whether it's in Europe. And then when you bring it nationally, and look at our own nation, and we discover the total moral mess of our nation... Where good is counted as bad, and bad is counted as good. And everything's been turned upside down. So that I'm often accused of being way far right. You want to know something? I have never changed from what I've been for over 50 years. I've never changed that lying is lying. That stealing is stealing. That adultery is adultery. Oh, what has happened is society has gone so far to the left that someone who was once, dare I say, in the middle is now considered way to the right. And so you have a Richard Dawkins writing The God Delusion, claiming science to be his answer's And in his book, gives not one iota of evidence of science for what he believes. And is more interested in throwing mud, which only actually removes the ground that he stands on. And then you come to your own heart and your own life. See, if you're a normal congregation, and I have to tell you, you look normal. Some of you haven't changed in 50 years, and you look normal. But if you're a normal congregation, you have incredible problems inside that no one knows anything about. Pornography is totally rampant on the Internet. They reckon something like 78% of hits are on pornographic websites. It swings through universities like you would not believe. And sad to say it's found high in Bible schools and seminaries as well. And you may be dressed up the way you want to be dressed up, looking like a queen or a king, and inside your whole being is falling apart. Or maybe it's just you can't cope with life. The studies are too hard. The pressures are too great. The standards are too high. The expectancy of their parents is too strong. And you feel like you're a nobody and a nothing. And you may suffer from cosmic loneliness where you can be in the midst of a crowd and totally isolated as if no one cares about you. Oh, we could go on and on, but I'm more keen on the positive than the negative. But of course, you have to know that light is meaningless if there is no darkness. You've got to know that truth is meaningless if there is no error. You've got to know there is no good news if there is no bad news. But I think most people understand the bad news in their own lives. Interesting, this city of Corinth, when Paul went there, It was a totally different place than it is today, and yet many things are exactly the same. The historian wrote about Corinth, at least one of them, and he said that Corinth was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. Now that isn't too bad for a description of the West today, is it? Intellectually alert. More people going to university than ever. More people graduating from a high school than ever. More people got smarts now than ever. Materially prosperous? Well, we just declared the wealthiest people in Britain today. I noticed I wasn't in the list. But I have to tell you, I may have very little, but I'm a son of the king. The ruler of this universe is my father. And I live like a millionaire. And I have nothing. Because what governs everything in the end is not the outside, it's the inside. It's not what people see of you, but what you see of yourself. So I tell you tonight, if you got struggles, there's wonderful news. You've got habits you can't control, there's wonderful news. Oh, it also said they were morally corrupt. And probably that's the greatest thing that people deal with today, certainly in youth. Because we live in a day and age when there's no such thing as right and wrong or good or bad. I was speaking to a six-year student in Airdrie. And she said, what she'd been taught in school, there's no such thing as good or bad or right or wrong. What might be right for you might be wrong for me. What might be wrong for me might be right for you. Cutting this right down to a minimum, I said to her, is there anything that is always wrong? No. Is there anything that is always right? No. So you'd be perfectly happy if I took a baby and a sword and for my self-enjoyment, I chopped its head off. At that, she recalled, she said, no, that's wrong. I said, on what basis did you discover that was wrong? My feelings. But You see, Hitler kicked, killed six million Jews on the basis of his feelings. Was he right or was he wrong? Oh, she said he was wrong. I said, well, what makes your feelings right and his feelings wrong? And so we have this incredible mess today where if we did it in the army, it would be court-martial. If we did it in the navy, it would be treason. If we caused it in a soccer, a football, or a rugby game, it would be chaos if we got rid of the rules. And if we did it in the highways of our road and said, no rules, do what you want, it would be disaster. But we've adopted it as a lifestyle for society in the UK. Nothing much different than the Corinth of palsy. And Paul writes to them a letter to this little church. Not many famous people in it. Not many educated people in it. Not many with uh, lots of money in it. They couldn't pull strings. Just the ordinary people who would come to a personal faith in Jesus and discovered their lives changed from the outside and from the inside so that they lived differently on the outside. But they were having their problems, so he wrote them an epistle. Eventually, he wrote them two, so I guess they were having double problems. right in the heart of that epistle. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. You know why? You get off the gospel, you've had it. Because the gospel is not just the message to change your life. The gospel is the message that will continually empower your life. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. So I take it in my proposition this evening. The gospel is good news. Okay, they both mean the same thing, but it's a play in words. The gospel is good news. Why? Because Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. You'll notice the two great truths of Christianity are found in that verse. Just a short little verse. Christ died for our sins, Jesus died on a cross. Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus was victorious over the two. You remove these from Christianity and you cannot have the Christian faith. It's totally impossible. Because these are the foundations on which the Christian faith is built the historic objective death of Jesus on a cross and the historic objective basis of his resurrection from the dead. And on that rock I stand. I want to unpack these two great truths. Firstly, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Can I start at the end and take the word sin? Not a popular word today, in fact, very rarely used. What do we mean by sin? Oh, I go back to my childhood. It's the big I in the middle that's the problem with sin. S-I-N. The me, the my, the mine. My problem. The me problem. The mine problem. The I problem. So we go to the Bible and what we discover is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And although I know many of you and know and don't know a lot of you, I can tell you this much. There's no difference. You look different, but there's no difference in one area of all our lives. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Word glory means reflected likeness. We were created in God's image to reflect His likeness. Sin came in with our first parents, has been passed on, so that you and I were born in sin and shaping in, Iniquity, that deviation off course that comes to every one of us as we go through life. Oh, some worse than others. And all have sinned and fall short. The word fall short indicates an archer or someone throwing a spear at a target and it misses the target. Oh, I remember going to camps, SU camps for instance, and Every now and again, someone had a great idea of bringing archery along, you know. If you've never fired a real bone arrow before, I know what happens. You get a bunch of kids, and there it is, away the target up there, and they go everywhere except hit the target. And if one just even hits the edge of the target, all the kids are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're miles away from the bullseye. And you know something? We all fall short. Oh, it's not that we're as bad as we could be. The problem is we're not as good as we should be. We all fall short. Some of you may be very good here. Some of you may be incredibly bad here. But every one of us stands hand in hand that we fall short of reflecting God's likeness. The Bible goes on to say, Sin is the breaking of the law. That's God's Ten Commandments. Now there's another problem. We got rid of God and now we've got rid of the commandments and now there's no restrictive barrier to protect society nor is there a mirror for society to look into and see what they're like. And God's Ten Commandments were never given to smile life. They were given to protect life. So take all the highway code away and drive as you want. That doesn't make the highway safer. It makes it more dangerous because the highway code is there to protect us on our journey. We all fall short. Sin is lawlessness. Breaking God's commands. Oh, I said they're like a mirror. You know, we all looked in the mirror today, didn't we? Some of us with wonder, love, and praise. All I know is I'm getting so like my father in the morning when my, I'm looking a mess. I look so like him, it's unbelievable. And at times I just say, hi, Dad, how are you doing? It's amazing. But that only tells me what I'm looking like on the outside. There's no mirror to tell me what I'm looking on the inside. Oh, yes, there is. It's called the Ten Commandments. And as a good boy growing up. And I looked into the mirror and it said, Don't lie. I saw a liar. And I looked into the mirror and it said, Don't steal. I saw a thief. And I looked into the mirror and it said, Honor your mother and father. And I saw someone who tried as hard as I could, but I fell short. What do you see when you look in the mirror tonight? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't use God's name wrongly. What do you see? You'll get an accurate reflection of yourself. The Bible continues and says, "...the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." In this verse, you'll get an indication that there's good news related to this bad news: wages oh, of sin is death. And our first parents sinned, broke God's law, violated God's command, did their own thing, went their own way. end result, they died. They were separated from God. Every one of us has been born physically alive and spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. And the longing that we have to fill the emptiness of life, and the longing that we have to fill meaning to life, and the longing that we have to have purpose in life, can only be fulfilled when we are reconnected to God. That's all it can do. So Pascal, the French physicist, said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human being that only God can fill. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Christ. C-H-R-I-S-T. Way back in Genesis, you read a very interesting verse. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and will strike you his heel and it is the first announcement of the gospel the first announcement of the gospel our first parents lost that relationship with God and there's a prediction made that there's going to be a conflict and it's done in symbolic terms against the evil one who caused our first parents fall and it's going to be against the coming one the Emmanuel, the God with us, the Christ, the Messiah. And there's going to be a conflict. And one is going to be defeated. He'll crush his head. But the other will suffer. And Jesus suffered in the cross. But it carries on throughout the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament. The prophets kept saying... He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. They said it over 300 times, covering 60 major subjects, from birth to death. He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. And Matthew writes his Gospel, and I checked it this afternoon 16 times, writing to Jewish people, he writes this little statement, that it might be fulfilled which was said by the prophets. And he writes to show that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies concerning the coming Christ, Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And John the Baptist kept telling them, there's one coming, there's one coming. His shoes, sandals, among all, worthy to tie them? But he's coming. This day, as Jesus walks towards him, he says, look, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus came. Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what some of them think. You're Elijah, come back again. Some of them think. And hey, there's a number of prophets' names that are being thrown around. And he says to his disciples, but who do you say I am? And Peter, always enthusiastic and sanguine. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm glad you said that. But it was my father that revealed that to you. Some of you have been coming to church here for a long time, or even a short time. And as you've listened to the pastors preach here, the light has been dawning, and you're beginning to see Jesus for who He is. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who took upon himself human form. He's the creator who invaded the creation. He's the designer who stepped into his design. He's the intelligence who walked in his order. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Isaiah the prophet said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we have healed. This is such a dramatic prophecy. The whole chapter, if not the whole book of Isaiah. It's such a dramatic one. And I say it carefully that the Jewish rabbis have to change the obvious meaning. Make it mean the nation Israel. But every Jew who comes to faith in Jesus, and I know numbers of have who have done, what they've discovered is that Jesus is a fulfillment to that prophecy. Because he died on a cross. He died that we would be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. But the Bible continues in Hebrews 2 9, he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And God loved the world, where there is cosmos, the most inclusive word that you could ever use. He loves every one of you. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, says John. To the believers, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So I have no problem telling you tonight, if no one loves you, God does. No one cares about you. God does. If no one understands your predicaments, God does. If no one understands or sees your difficulties, God does. And He loves you. And He sent His Son to die for you. To rescue you. And restore you back to a relationship with Him. And regenerate you to a life that you long for. It's not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That you were redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ. And he talks to these early believers and says, Hey, it wasn't silver or gold. It was the blood of Christ. And it just doesn't mean His blood in that sense... You go back to the Old Testament, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the great truth is that when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed, he came to that point where his life was gone. So he gave his life for your life. That he might give his life to you. Let me give one other scripture here. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Did you get that? God was in Christ reconnecting a lost world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And I've gone through that one in my mind. Know something? Jesus has done everything, everything, essential that you might be reconnected to God. He took your place. He paid your price. He satisfied God's justice. He made a way back, but He will not goose-step you into the kingdom. He waits till you trust Him. Take that step of faith. And if one day you die having never responded to him, separated from him, you'll be separated forever. Not for your sin, because that was dealt with, but your rejection of the gift of Jesus as your salvation. Now, this is good news. I know it doesn't sound it for some of you, but this is good news that Christ died for our sins. you know what it means? It means now God's justice has been satisfied through the death of Jesus, and now God can forgive anyone who comes and puts their trust in Jesus and be just and the justifier of those who believe. Wow. As a 12-year-old boy, I came. out at the foot of the cross. In simple terms, I asked Jesus to come into my life. Though I did pray, Lord Jesus, look after me as a hen looks after her chickens. And that was 57 years ago. from sinking sands, he lifted me. And with tender hands, he lifted me. And from shades of night into realms of light, I praise his name, he lifted me. And I still, still, still stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, Condemned, unclean. But he loves you the same way. And now, because of the cross, you can be reconnected back to God. And the creator of this universe can become your loving heavenly father. Oh, he didn't just mention the cross. He said, how much more in Romans 5. But here he said, Christ rose from the dead. Oh, quickly, the fact of the resurrection. Let no one fool you. The tomb was empty. It was never debated. It's because it was empty they had to find an excuse for its emptiness. They came up with a crummy excuse the first time. The Roman soldier said, while we were sleeping, the disciples stole the body. How do they know? They were asleep. It's like some of you. How do you know what the sermon is? Two of them just woke up. You see, in the end, it doesn't stand up ethically. It doesn't stand up experientially. It doesn't stand up historically. It would be thrown out of court. Ah, but on top of that, he made appearances. We read about them. He made approximately 11 appearances over a period of 40 days to crowds of 500 at once, most of whom are still alive. And when he wrote that, he said, check them out, check them out, check them out. I suppose there's nothing dominated my life more than the resurrection. I've studied it, I've read it, I've got books on it that I've read. And I've come to the conclusion, as many others, there is no greater attested fact in history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So with confidence, I tell you, he rose from the dead. It so changed 11 disciples that for the rest of their lives they suffered whippings, stonings, lashings, beatings, imprisonment, starvation, and martyrdom. They were willing to die for it, not for a cause, because people die for a cause all around the world today, but die for a historic sighting. We met him, we saw him, we handled him, we looked upon him. They were willing to die for it. What was the reason for the resurrection? Well, Paul says in Romans, regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It is the great authentication that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's the great authentication of his deity, that he is the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. He's the one who took upon himself human form, was made in the likeness of man, was obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. We live in the visited planet. And he rose from the dead. Uh, What was the other reason? Well, of course, it was the reason that his death on the cross was to reconnect me, but his resurrection from the dead was to regenerate me, restore me back to normality. Put the petrol back into the tank of my life that's empty. Put the ink into the pen that I write with that's dry. Put the power into the light bulb that's out because the electricity isn't plugged in. Put God into my life so that I can be godly. And begin to live love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness and self control. Wow. Tell me who doesn't want that. I know some of you are just thinking this is too good to be true. Speaking to a men's dinner down in England, it was late at night. Coming up to midnight, I've been talking to two men. One of them said to me, if this is true, it is unbelievable. It's too good to be true. Let me tell you with all my heart, it is incredibly true. It is incredibly true. Because he becomes a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he'll walk over the mountains with you and he'll go through the valleys with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And so the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead because he said prior to his death, without me you can do nothing. And so he rose from the dead that by his spirit he might link with our dead spirit, regenerate our spirit to life. And if the spirit of of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. And so what he wants to do is come and live within us. Begin to develop a relationship with us. Because in a true sense, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus that brings us into harmony with God. And whereby we begin to walk creator and creature, hand in hand. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me, I am his own." That's ungood. And where you're weak, he begins to make you strong. And where you're wrong, he begins to make you right. And when you're off course, he begins to get you on course. And where you're down, he begins to lift you up. And so I give you this last verse given by the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what Fiona was indicating tonight. I've been crucified with Christ. He died for me. I accept it. I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Fifty years ago, a bunch of young people in this church met together in Jim Whitley's house and so began a group called the Heralds. Jim's bass guitar was made out of a chest of drawers. Fifty years have gone by. And as we look back, hard to believe. I can't explain my life without Jesus. It is impossible. Can I cannot explain it. It's not based on cleverness. It's not based on money. It's not based on who I know. It's based entirely on a relationship. Started way back then. And I was taking to places I never dreamt where I'd go. Do things I never dreamt where I'd do. Sit down with people I never thought I would sit down with. And I live, but it's not me. It's Jesus living within me, it's Jesus empowering me. It's a relationship. So my praying coming to the church tonight is so different to what it used to be. Now I don't ask him to do things. I thank him he's going to do them. Now I don't ask him to accomplish this. I just know he's going to do it. So I say, Lord, thank you. It's going to be a great night tonight. You're going to be there. You're living within me as well. I don't have to think up the message you've already given me. I don't have to think up the content. You are the content. Oh, I know I have to do my study and I need to pray. But in the end, it's you. So, Lord, here I am. Here's my eyes to look through. So I see people as you see them. Here's my ears to listen so I can hear. And hear people as you hear them. And here's my mouth to speak. So that it's your voice. Lord, I'm looking forward to tonight. Have a great night. And out in the seats tonight, there are people who desperately need to trust for themselves, and I can't meet you. I can't make you. There's only one way you can come. Peter mentioned it this morning. The dedication. You come as a little child. I remember my son Stevie was young. He'd stand on the second stair of the step of the stairway and he'd swing himself and he'd say, Daddy catch, and he would jump and I'd catch him and he'd laugh and he'd giggle and he'd do it again, Dad, do it again. And we'd do it again. Then he'd get older and he was on the fifth stair. That was a little bit more difficult. By the time he was eight, you would be walking through the hall and you'd just hear, Hi, Dad! And you'd look around and there's Bonder boy in the air. You whoo- know. My biggest problem was when he was 17 and he was standing on the landing. No, he was no longer a little boy. In fact, he towers over me now. What was What was happening? Oh, he thought his dad can do anything. Haven't you heard your children say that? My dad can do anything. My mom can do something. My grand, she's still alive. But when they're little kids, they just trust you, don't they? And Jesus is saying, you need to come as a little child and cast yourself on me. I'll hold you. You need to come to me and trust me. I'll save you. You need to turn to me and call upon me and I'll hear you. And if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Wow. And the journey begins. If you want an exciting life, you ask Jesus to come into your life. If you want a life that will be totally against the run of play, you give yourself to him. But be ready, because the ride is a fast ride. Good news for bad times. Christ died for our sins. To reconnect us to God, Christ rose from the dead to regenerate us to life. Will you come to him? The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? Time after time, he's waited before and now he is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, won't you let him come in? Let's bow our heads in prayer.